Hello and welcome to this podcast of Neonatal Conversations. This podcast has been created to improve understanding for neonatal and paediatric trainees, nursing and medical colleagues and anyone who is interested in becoming more familiar with our boutique area of medicine. My name is Kath Carmo and I am a neonatal intensive care specialist in Sydney, Australia. My practice is in the Grace Centre for Newborn Intensive Care and in Neonatal Retrieval as the Deputy Director of NETS New South Wales. My research focus has been in neonatal ultrasound in retrieval, where we take point-of-care ultrasound on the run to assess critically ill newborns, specifically focusing on the baby with significant oxygen requirements. So today we're going to discuss undiagnosed congenital heart disease that presents in babies in the neonatal period, and joining me in this conversation is Dr Christian Turner. Christian is a local to Sydney who trained largely here in the Sydney Children's Hospital Network and then went to Freeman Hospital in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the UK and the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada, before returning to the Heart Centre for Children in 2011. We like to say that Christian is the rhythm section of the cardiology team as his specialty is in electrophysiology where he treats infants and children with rhythm disturbance or an abnormal heartbeat. During training, Christian and I worked together in the retrieval service and we now work together in the neonatal nursery. Today we are going to be thinking through how we arrive at a probable cardiac diagnosis in babies who have been screened antenatally with no cardiac lesion found and who then present in the postnatal period in a way that leads referring paediatricians to think that there might be congenital heart disease. So welcome Christian. Oh, Kath, well, thank you very much for um, inviting me to talk. It is really exciting. Um, I certainly spend a lot of time at the other end of this, listening to lots of podcasts. So, um, no, it's really exciting to be part of it. Thank you. Great. So, Christian, to start us off, I thought we might get a better understanding of how you became a paediatric cardiologist. What inspired you to embark on this long journey to become a specialist in this area? And has it panned out as you'd planned? Yeah, so it, it certainly has been a, a long journey. Um, as you said in the intro, I'm a, a local to Sydney. I, I grew up in Sydney. Uh, I spent some time up on uh, Lake Macquarie as well and, and going to high school up there. Um, so um, I am a bit of a local, know Sydney quite well um, and the state. Um, I, I must say I had a bit of a, a turbulent few years in high school and um, in those turbulent years without going into all the gory detail, <laughs> oh, do tell. I, um, I found that um, I found learning actually a real um, solace and um, a nice place to be and it helped helped me through those years mm. and I think it's sort of given me that that um, motive and direction for even my learning now. Um, it is it's quite remarkable what what learning and knowledge can give you in, in, in the, the solace um, that it gives you. Mm, interesting. So um, yeah, I um, did all of my um, uh, med school training in Sydney and um, did my general paediatric training in Sydney as well. And it was in my my general peds training that I really liked paediatric cardiology. Um, I, I think there's a real tangible nature to um, paediatric cardiology. The, clearly, the the congenital heart disease has a has a very structural nature to it, and has a very um, it's a very tangible thing. It's very, something that is easy to understand, and the, once you understand the principles, it allows you to to manage the babies and children well. Um, so I liked that aspect of it, and and got into paediatric cardiology. And then when I got into paediatric cardiology, I realised that the electrophysiology was even more interesting. Um, so I, I do love the arrhythmia. Um, it, it goes really well with that more tangible part of structural heart disease. Mm. Um, in, in the arrhythmia and electrophysiology, there's a lot of thinking and a lot of detective work as well, but it's also tangible. And I think you also find that you can make a huge difference to families and 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 their children and babies. You you can have you can make a very big impact on their lives. And you also, I, I think I, I get a lot from the fact that I, I am intake, I'm taken into these families' lives and um, feel quite privileged to be in a, in a position like that. Yes, so it's a very complex area, isn't it? 
So how long did it actually take for you to train as a paediatric electrocardiogram physiologist? Yep. Um, so uh, in addition to all of my, my general peds training and then the, the training for paediatric cardiology, so that uh, uh, was probably uh, seven or eight years. And then on top of that, um, in Australia, you do need to go overseas to get more exposure um, to larger centres that have, have more uh, patients uh, to see all of the different interesting pathology. So I then went overseas, as I think you said in the intro, to the UK and then, uh, and then across to Canada as well. Um, and so we spent another two years doing that on top of the, the uh, formal training in Australia. That extra training overseas was really important and really helpful. But it was also helpful going to two different centres, two different continents that had different approaches yeah. and getting a good exposure to both of them and, and then bringing that back and I think bringing back the best bits of that. Um, so it was a long haul. It's been worth it. It's a really interesting and rewarding part of paediatrics. So that's about 12 years to come back for, to when you came back to be a paediatric cardiologist here from medical school. Yeah, that would be about right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I like how you say that you bring back the best bits because what I find often when I go overseas, um, we see that the Australian health system is excellent actually, isn't it? And um, there are things we can learn because they have larger patient populations, but actually what we've got in Australia is pretty good and we're lucky that people like you come back to work in the health system. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think the Australian health system is, is really good. Uh, look, there are bits that we can improve upon, but mm. when you do work overseas, you realise actually we're, we're quite lucky in Australia to have, have the system that we do have. Um, but also you do recognise that the individuals that we work with in Australia are, are really good too. So mm. I think we are in a, in a good spot in, in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So thanks for that. Um, I'll have to get back to you on the turbulent years later. <laughs> Um, so now let's talk about congenital heart disease in the retrieval setting. Can we first talk through what the ultrasound at 18 to, 18 to 20 weeks of pregnancy is actually screening for and what leads to a referral to a fetal cardiologist? Yeah, so that ultrasound that happens at about 18 to 20 weeks is, is a morphology scan and I believe that's more or less the standard of care or at least an expectation to occur for every uh, for every mother that has a has a baby, and it's there to pick up abnormalities. Clearly, it's a screening um, uh, study. And in terms of heart problems, there is a my understanding is that there's a set um, a number of views that are obtained by the person doing that study, and they're designed to pick up most of the significant heart problems. Um, so there are um, very set views that are aimed to pick up um, significant heart problems such as hyperplastic left heart syndrome or transposition of the great arteries or atrioventricular septal defect. Um, now, it is just a screening study. It's not ne necessarily meant to definitively make a diagnosis, but it is meant to pick abnormalities up. And yeah, so they're really looking to see four chambers, aren't they? Correct. And to see the vessels crossing as they come out. Correct. Um, yeah. Any other views that they look at? So you're right, there's the, there's a four-chamber view where they look to see that the, the uh, ventricles are balanced mm. and therefore should pick up hyperplastic left heart syndrome or problems with uh, right ventricular hyperplasia. Um, the so by balanced, you mean the same size? Correct, yeah, yeah. that the left ventricle appears more, more or less the same size as the right ventricle. Uh, there's an outlet view as well um, mm. that would be designed to pick up things like tetralogy of fallow. And then there's a, also a view, the, the three-vessel view, that is aimed to pick up the crossing of the, the great vessels and then hopefully pick up transposition of the great arteries. If they're not crossing. If they're not crossing, that's right, mm. yeah. Okay, so lesions that might be missed include those outside the heart, like coarctation, if there's small VSDs, and perhaps some pulmonary stenosis. But at least 80% of the rest should be picked up if the scan goes to plan and the baby doesn't jump around too much at 18 weeks. Yeah, that, that's about right. Uh, look, there's, you know, this is hard work. Clearly the fetuses are small, 
uh, and they can be mobile and there can be other things that impede good views. But yeah, we're picking up about 80% of the uh, congenital heart disease. We won't necessarily pick up coarctation. Uh, coarctation can develop later as the ductus closes. Um, and with the ductus wide open as expected as a fetus, you, you're not necessarily going to see the coarctation. Uh, you would uh, easily miss small VSDs and minor valvular problems such as maybe uh, bicuspid aortic valve. But the aim would be to pick up the significant structural heart disease that would be important to pick up uh, fetally so that uh, the necessary counselling for the family can occur and that also the necessary planning for uh, delivery and the perinatal period can happen as well. Hmm. Okay. So a typical referral to NETS often goes like this. A baby makes it through delivery to arrive onto the resuscitaire pale, floppy and barely breathing. The paediatrician um, has done some initial resuscitation, including intubating and ventilating the baby, and describes the baby as morphologically normal. They do a chest x-ray and the heart looks slightly large. They call NETS for retrieval and their working diagnosis is congenital heart disease. What do you think of this diagnosis and what lesions are likely to present like this? Look, it, it, it's not a typical presentation for congenital heart disease. One thing that needs to be remembered is that uh, for a lot of the congenital heart disease that presents in the neonatal period, there are some time points that, that these happen at. And it's a little unusual for heart disease to present right at birth. There are some lesions that can, can occur at birth. But a lot of the lesions that do present occur when the ductus arteriosus closes. Okay? So the ductus arteriosus closes over a, um, a period of time. It is a little variable normally earliest at, say, 12 hours of life, and it, but it can even close days and sometimes a little unusually weeks later. Um, so that's probably when a lot of the so-called ductal-dependent lesions do present. In the lesions, in the congenital heart disease that presents at birth, it would be a, a more significant lesion. Mm. Uh, so this, this setting would probably be, be more like a perinatal asphyxia and there's something happened in the birth pathway. Yeah. But So what are the most significant cardiac lesions that present once the cord is cut? Um, what are the sickest babies in the delivery suite from a congenital heart disease point of view and how might they present? Yeah, so look, there are a few things that could present at, at birth like this. Um, and some examples would be hyperplastic left heart syndrome that does have a restrictive atrial uh, communication. So um, your the uh, the ductus might still be open, but as part of that circulation, you're still dependent on having a, a communication at the atrial level as well. And if that atrial communication is already restricted, then they can present very early and very sick. Um, transposition of the great arteries can also present early, um, especially if there's an intact ventricular septum. Uh, and the key thing here, again, is the atrial communication as to whether the atrial communication is restrictive or not. The ductus arteriosus, if it's patent, does help, but often the babies with transmission of the great arteries are also dependent on having adequate uh, an adequate atrial communication. Um, another example would be um, uh, total anomalous pulmonary venous return. And again, in that lesion, you would be dependent on having an, uh, an atrial communication that's wide open. Mm. So the theme here is that those lesions that present early that are severe are also dependent on having an open atrial communication. And if it's not, then they w may well present very early, but very sick at the same time. Um, other possibles are things like uh, pulmonary atresia when the right ventricle hasn't developed properly as well. So... Uh, they might present cyanosed at birth because they have a lot of right-to-left shunting across at the atrial level, and they may present just blue at birth. Um, Epstein malformation in a, in a similar vein with a, uh, an underdeveloped right ventricle uh, or poorly functioning right ventricle, sometimes also some coexisting lung disease, but importantly also shunting at the, at the atrial level right-to-left, meaning that they're going to be cyanosed at birth. Yeah, so I guess um, it's probably important to remember that 
they usually arrive, they should arrive okay and have a, a, adequate APGARs except for being blue, um, unless they have had difficulty in labour and delivery and then their circulatory problems become, or their heart lesion problems become evidence once, evident once the cord is cut and they attempt to transition their circulation without this adequate interatrial communication. Um, I think it's important to remember that babies with hyperplastic left heart syndrome and babies with transposition with the VSD also, as you said, with the duct remaining open for a few, a few weeks can appear relatively well until the ductal closure in those first few days and sometimes weeks. Uh, obstructed TAPVR, of course, as you said, um, does usually present in the immediate, immediate neonatal period, but they, can't, they are well in the first few minutes post-birth. Um, but if it is unobstructed, uh, and, and in Nets retrieval we see this a little bit, um, a baby that presents with bronchiolitis in the first few days or weeks of life um, down the track is actually can actually be a unobstructed TAPVR. So there's a spectrum to that lesion, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. The unobstructed TAPVR, uh, in my mind, are the, are the great masqueraders. masqueraders. They can look like other problems such as uh, persisting pulmonary hypertension, or even in slightly older infants, uh, bronchiolitis. Um, so they, they can be a little difficult to, to pick up um, and they can present much later. So it, it's really important to keep uh, TAPVR in the back of your mind, even in, in slightly older neonates and even infants. Okay, so going on from that. So when Trish Woods um, studied our situation in the state of New South Wales with regards to transposition of the great arteries, we have a birth rate in New South Wales of 100,000 babies per annum. And she found that despite an excellent fetal anomaly scan at 18 weeks in our health system, babies with undiagnosed transposition of the great arteries continue to present undiagnosed to the NETS retrieval teams around eight times a year. And so the retrieval teams need to make a diagnosis clinically and occasionally by a clinician performed ultrasound and are then galvanised to move the baby toward a site where a paediatric cardiologist can perform a balloon atrial septostomy. So Christian, can you explain for us why doesn't the paediatric cardiologist travel to the baby to do the balloon atrial septostomy? And what, what's the purpose of creating a hole between these two atria? Yeah, so it's a uh, good question. In fact, I might start with the, the second of those two questions and the importance of why it's in, uh, important to... Uh, do the atrial septostomy. So as people would probably know, in transposition of the great arteries, there's a, a circulation going on in parallel. It's not in series. Um, so we need to somehow have mixing of blood between those two parallel circuits. And if there's not a, um, a good VSD, then often we need to ensure that that mixing is happening at the atrial level. And sometimes there will be an adequate atrial communication and we don't need to step in. And there will be adequate mixing of blood between the, the blue and the pink blood uh, at the atrial level. If, it is, if the atrial communication is restrictive, then that baby can be in a lot of danger and it needs to be recognised. And um, the necessary action needs to happen quite quickly as well. And the, the importance here is to perform a... Uh, arranged to perform a septostomy where the interventional cardiologist will insert a catheter into the heart uh, across the atrial communication and blow up a little balloon on the end of that catheter and then draw that back across the, the atrial septum, aiming to enlarge the atrial communication and therefore aiming to have good mixing of blood between the two atria. And that actually stabilises the situation in these babies so that uh, the necessary steps can be taken to do the, the full repair by the cardiothoracic surgeons. So much so that sometimes, oftentimes, we can actually switch the prostin off if it's already been started. Um, and that uh, might mean that we can manage the baby um, without being ventilated until the baby has the full repair. Being able to switch the prostin off, that is, it may, might mean that we can have the baby not ventilated. It also makes it just that little bit easier for the surgeons. The, the prostin tends to make the tissues a little bit more boggy and slightly more difficult for the surgeons to work with. So in all, it tends to stabilise the situation and it is a life-saving procedure as well. In terms of answering the, the first of those two questions, though, um, 
it's a it's a good thought about having the pediatric cardiologist uh, be transferred out to the hospital where the baby might be. What we're finding now around the world, uh, the standard is becoming that the cardiologists are developing particular skills in all of the different areas of pediatric cardiology. And it's now uh, um, common that the interventional cardiologist, for instance, will be performing this procedure. Not just the interventional cardiologist, sometimes some other cardiologists will be able to perform it, but it is important that you have a cardiologist that has done this a number of times and continues to do it a number of times every year, and so is very familiar with it mm. and can be comfortable doing the procedure. Uh, in our centres now where we might have 10 or more cardiologists, if we were all to do these procedures, then none of us probably would actually get enough exposure. So we tend to have a handful of cardiologists that will uh, be able to do this procedure. And therefore, um, having um, cardiologists that would be able to travel out to the local communities to do this would be quite difficult in that in that sort of yeah, setup. Yeah, so you have a smaller number and they're particularly skilled, skilled at doing that procedure and so you, we wouldn't have enough of them to be able to send out that's right. to the patients. That's right, absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, the, the other part of this discussion is that actually most of the time the, uh, the heart disease is actually detected antenatally. And, yes, there are... Um, some lesions that are missed, but actually we do pick up most of them antenatally and therefore we can plan so that that baby with transposition is delivered in a centre that has the cardiologist able to do this procedure on site. Uh, on site. And yeah. in actual fact, we can do that most of the time. Yes, there will be the occasional baby that has that lesion missed, uh, but um, in the majority of cases, we can still transfer them to the centre where the cardiologists are available to do this procedure. Yes, and we do do it safely in New South Wales eight times a year, so yeah. um, that is achievable. So just stepping back a little bit, I just wanted to unpack about, um, you said the circulation is in parallel, and not in series. So I think sometimes we use those words and um, without really just explaining them to our tra trainees or people who are just learning about this. So can you just explain for us, Christian, what, what do we mean when we say the circulation is in parallel and not in series. So to explain the, the circulation in parallel, the blue blood returns from the body to the right side, the right atrium and, and then right ventricle. The right ventricle then pumps the blood to the aorta. The aorta. Yeah. And of course, therefore, you have a, 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 a circulation there where the blood is being pumped to the, the body without being oxygenated. Okay? And then the blood that's returning from the lungs returns to the left atrium correctly and to the left ventricle, but then the left ventricle then pumps that blood back to the lungs again. So you have two, two uh, circulations that are operating sort of independently of each other yeah. uh, in parallel. And if there was actually no mixing of blood in that circuit, then that's actually not sustainable with life. Now... It is sustainable before the baby is born, um, with the uh, with the placenta doing the oxygenation, and there is also mixing of blood as well. Uh, but after the baby is born, if there's not adequate mixing of blood between those two circuits, then that's not sustainable with life, and that's when we need to step in and uh, provide a site of mixing, and that is at the atrial level. Mm. Um, so then what we mean by series is the blood returns to the right side of the heart, um, visits the, in, normal, in the normal situation, goes to the lungs, comes back to the left side of the heart, goes out to the body, comes back to the right side. So it's all happening, happening in the normal series. And what we're doing with the balloon atrial septostomy is encouraging some mixing of those two parallel circulations so that the baby's oxygenated they're not oxygenated fully, are they? But they we increase their oxygen saturation to a survivable level. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So now, as we discussed in the last episode with Yishe Or, hyperplastic left heart syndrome has become more survivable in recent times. But how are babies with hyperplastic left heart with an intact septum faring? Clearly, they would die if not antenatally diagnosed. But can you describe? now how they're managed in 2020? Yeah, so that's right. So the, this 
these babies with hyperplastic left heart syndrome, and as it is, hyperplastic left heart syndrome is probably at the uh, most severe end of the spectrum with congenital heart disease. And there are, within this group of babies, uh, uh, groups, uh, various risk within this group of babies. And the babies that have a restrictive atrial communication are probably at the more severe end of the risk spectrum in this group of babies. Uh, with hyperplastic left heart syndrome, it is um, vital that you have an unrestrictive atrial communication. And that can often be detected antenatally. In fact, that's one of the things that we would aim to do in a baby that has hyperplastic left heart syndrome diagnosis. Mm. We assess the atrial communication because if the atrial communication is not adequate, then the blood that's returning from the lungs to the left atrium, if there's a restrictive atrial communication, that blood has nowhere to go. Because mm. there's mitral stenosis or mitral atresia as that, part of the syndrome. Correct. Yeah. And with that blood having nowhere to go, it generates increased pressure in the left atrium, and that increased pressure can actually injure the lung tissue and the, the small blood vessels within the lung tissue. So it, uh, just by nature of the injury that can happen to the lung tissue and those, those small blood vessels, that does create a higher risk group, but it also does mean that the babies are at risk immediately after they're, they're born. They do need that atrial communication to be able to survive. So picking up this group of babies is really important, so much so that we plan to actually deliver these babies within the children's hospital. Um, now, uh, that's unusual for us in that the, uh, pretty much all of the babies otherwise are actually born in the uh, neighbouring adult hospitals and then transferred to us. Uh, but in this situation, we plan that they be born within the theatres, within the children's hospital, so that a atrial septectomy can be performed immediately after birth. So that atrial septectomy is a, an operation performed by the cardiothoracic surgeons uh, involving a, a stenotomy and bypass, where the surgeon then cuts out a part of the atrial septum to make that atrial communication bigger and, and therefore the congenital heart disease, the lesion, actually survivable and then puts them in a, uh, a position where we would assess the, the suitability for the next procedures for hyperplastic left heart syndrome. Hmm. So why, why can't we just do a balloon septostomy for those babies? Why do they have to have an immediate operative procedure to um, create communication between the atria? Well, we can actually do the balloon atrial septostomy. I guess this is a means of us just controlling the situation as much as we possibly can. With a balloon atrial septostomy, uh, we may not have complete control over the outcome and how quickly we get to that point. Uh, that is an option, but with the atrial septectomy, we can make sure it happens immediately after birth, mm. and we can also make sure that the result is actually adequate for the circulation. And then in the, in the days afterwards, we then assess whether the baby is actually going to be uh, a good candidate for the the next operation, the Norwood procedure. Um, I've already mentioned that these babies sometimes do have some uh, lung injury from the restrictive atrial communication. So in the days after we do this atrial septectomy, we can make sure by watching them clinically, has there been any evidence of injury to the, to the vascular bed in the lungs? So we look for evidence of... Um, uh, persisting raised pulmonary vascular resistance and if we see that drop nicely then that tells us that it might be a good candidate for the next operation. Mm. So prior to us setting that up in um, our hospital these babies all died didn't they? So how many of those babies would survive now? So this is the more severe end of the spectrum in hyperplastic left heart syndrome so we are achieving about a 50% survival rate mm. to the second stage of the um, of this series of operations. So, um, uh, and that's uh, standard. That's pretty um, in keeping with international standards as well. Yeah, yeah. So it's been a real achievement for us here in New South Wales and real teamwork, hasn't it? There's about 100 people involved in the care of that baby during its first week of life. 
And this is a team that's carefully crafted with each individual having a, a discrete, highly specialised skill set that the baby needs from them to get to the next moment of their care or stage in their progress. Um, so unfortunately for us in retrieval, if these babies are not born in a children's hospital, there's really no hope for their survival. And so we're really, really reliant on uh, antenatal diagnosis in this group. So moving on from there, I want to talk a little bit about babies who arrive shocked into the ED around day two to the first month of life. So Dr. Helen Casby did some work at NETS and looked at how many of these babies had a cardiac diagnosis and how many were sick from other causes in the first fortnight. And in about 50% of these babies, they had infection and 50% of them had a cardiac problem. And of course... Our own Dr. Robert Halliday has always taught us that the liver is the big differentiator between these two groups. And in the collapsed neonate, the liver enlarges in left heart obstruction and doesn't in the setting of sepsis. And of course, in this group, there were a smattering of babies with bronchiolitis during that time and a few with metabolic disease. But I want us to really focus on the baby with a cardiac lesion. And those were mostly left heart obstruction but we did see a few babies that presented in shock with SVT. And to go to that diagnosis first, because I know it's your favourite, um, what is your approach to the neonate with SVT with signs of circulatory compromise? What are your first management strategies? Well, I think the, the key thing is to assess just how sick the baby is with SVT. Uh, most babies uh, do present who, who present in SVT are actually um, not so bad. They mm. are actually tolerating the, the rapid rate. Um, there will be a point in time when uh, the babies do deteriorate because clearly the SVT rate is very fast and um, there will be a point in time where many of them will, will deteriorate. But I think for the most part, most of the babies that actually present with SVT are actually in pretty good condition and can be managed in more or less the, the usual manner. Um, and so that does mean some uh, vagal manoeuvres um, with the, uh, the dunking in, into iced water is effective. But also things like even using a nasogastric tube to, to induce a bit of a, a vagal response that way. Um, mm. I also find that this probably is a little bit more applicable to the older babies and children, but often when a baby or child comes into emergency, there's a lot of um, uh, anxiety that gets created. And I think just that environment of um, there being lots of activity, lots of noise, I actually think also helps support the abnormal rhythm. There's a lot of sympathetic activation that goes on. Right. This is probably, as I say, more applicable to the older child. Yeah. But that sympathetic activation, all that anxiety, does help support the arrhythmia. There's a lot of adrenaline yes. going. Yes. And that does tend to help support the arrhythmia. So if the baby is actually in a good condition, then I think people can step back a bit, mm. take a bit of a breather, um, and and... Uh, allow the baby to relax a bit as well, and that will often actually see the baby will spontaneously revert back into sinus rhythm. But clearly, if that's not happening, then we do need to step in. Um, again, if the baby's in a reasonable condition without um, signs of, of collapse, then uh, establishing a good cannula and then giving adenosine um, is, is important. But if there is signs of collapse, then yes, um, cardioversion would be the next step. Um, having said that, it's a little bit unusual that we would need to do that, but certainly that would be necessary if there are signs of, of uh, collapse. Hmm. Um, so I have a few questions around this topic. Uh, are there any known causes of SVT and why does it commonly appear in the newborn? Do they grow out of it? And it does seem less common for us in retrieval for it to present in the older child. Is that true? Uh, look, I don't think it's... so. Um, let's talk about the first question first. So, about the uh, what what causes the SVT in the neonate. So, in the majority of times, it's due to an accessory pathway, so an extra pathway that bridges the the fibrous layer between the ventricles and the atria. And now, this accessory pathway is a means for um, electrical impulses to travel from the ventricles back to the atria. And then, if you have that means, you have that means of setting up a re-entrant or short circuit loop that allows the SVT to occur. Mm. So 
most of the time it's due to an accessory pathway and therefore due um, to a rhythm called orthodromic atria ventricular entrance tachycardia. But simply a re-entering or short circuit loop that uh, conducts from the atria through the AV node into the ventricles and then back to the atria retrograde via that accessory pathway. And do we know, are there any causes why that accessory pathway is set up? Is Is it a developmental pathway or is it a genetic problem? So in the, we think that actually many fetuses have these accessory pathways, uh, but as the fetus grows, these accessory pathways normally actually disconnect. Mm. And so most of us actually do not have the accessory pathways, but then just some still have that one or two extra pathways that allow the SVP to, to set up. Um, there are some associations with congenital heart disease, so... With Epstein malformation, there is a reasonably strong uh, correlation with accessory pathways, uh, which can cause Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome and SVT. Uh, whether um, we see it less commonly in children, I, there is a peak in the uh, neonates in terms of presentations, but then there's also uh, a peak in later childhood and in teenage years. Yeah. I think... We probably just don't see, you may not see as many of them in retrieval because probably most of them don't need to be retrieved. We can usually manage those older children and teenagers without needing an urgent retrieval. Um, right. And the accessory pathway in the neonate, you said we, we might all have them in utero and we they just disconnect. Is that perhaps why they happen in the neonatal period and then they don't occur again later in life because that pathway becomes... Disconnected? Well, we, yeah, so we, we do commonly see neonate or fetuses have SVT, and um, that's an, um, another thing that might be picked up by fetal screening. We sometimes see the fetuses mm. in SVT, and of course they're more likely to present as a neonate with SVT. The good news is, though, in a neonate that presents with SVT, they have about a 70% chance of actually outgrowing it by the time they reach one year of age. Mm. And there's a similar process going on, probably, to what I mentioned before, where the the fetus is growing, the baby is growing rapidly, and therefore the heart is growing rapidly as well. And if the heart's growing rapidly, then there's a good chance that that accessory pathway will simply disconnect. Mm. So the the outcome is good for these babies with SVT. Uh, We can manage them medically uh, very well to begin with, um, and the majority of those babies will outgrow their SVT. If they don't, then we also have a very good treatment when they reach about four or five years of age, and that's with ablation and actually uh, getting rid of that extra accessory pathway. All right, and that's the fun part of it. Absolutely, right? <laughs> that's even more fun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now go- going to the baby that presents with circulatory collapse with ductal closure and poor pulses. So Dr. Steph Boyd here at NETS looked into this and established that from a retrieval perspective in New South Wales, we transport somewhere between 12 and 20 babies each year with left heart obstruction in New South Wales. So can you just discuss a little bit about why this diagnosis is missed on the antenatal screen? And then how do you decide on the retrieval call that this diagnosis is likely? Yeah, so look, probably the more um, likely lesion to be missed is coarctation. Like I mentioned at the, um, at the beginning of our conversation, we talked about one of the caveats of fetal echo is that it might not pick up coarctation. And so that's probably the more likely to be missed and therefore present as a, a very sick neonate. Um, and now that presentation will ha- happen when the ductus closes. Um, and so the presentation is similar for, um, to the other lesions you mentioned as well with hyperplastic left heart syndrome and aortic stenosis. Sometimes aortic stenosis can be missed as well because uh, it, it, the aortic stenosis, um, uh, you're relying on seeing the aortic valve being abnormal in a very small infant, in a very small fetus rather. Um, so that, that could be missed as well. These babies will present with, uh, with circulatory collapse. Um, so they will present shocked, tachypneic, very, uh, they'll have poor pulses um, and and hepatomegaly. Um, now, you can uh, roughly work out where you think the level of left heart obstruction might be based upon your clinical acumen. 
So, for instance, with aortic stenosis, you will understandably find that all of your pulses are going to be reduced. Your brachial pulses and your femoral pulses will be reduced, but you'll also have a, a loud murmur, most likely. Okay, mm. and you might even pick up a click. Uh, with hyperplastic left heart syndrome, again, your pulses in your upper body and your lower body will be reduced, but you may not, you won't have that murmur. Okay, and then with coarctation your brachial pulse in your right arm should be strong because your right subclavian artery, which feeds your right arm, is proximal to the coarctation the, the segment. So it's the right arm that's really critical. Sometimes your left arm pulses might be strong as well, depending on where that left subclavian takes off, whether mm. it's proximal or distal to the coarctation, but the right arm is, is critical. Um, of course, the femoral pulses will be reduced in that in that situation um, and the heart looks big on the chest x-ray usually in, in most of those perhaps not in hyperplastic left heart but correct so you might yeah. still get some um, uh, cardiomegaly in the hyperplastic left heart but yes you would expect um, uh, cardiomegaly and increased CTR on the chest x-ray of those other two lesions hmm. yeah. and so we need to get prostin into the baby quickly to rescue the baby from that situation and uh, Absolutely, that's critical to recognise left heart obstruction. Uh, Prostin is really critical and life-saving. Mm. So in these scenarios um, where we make this diagnosis in the retrieval, um, the ductus is closed and the systemic flow is completely obstructed. Um, or sometimes it's not completely obstructed, but largely obstructed. Um, and ED staff, certainly in our state of New South Wales, often rely on a tibial intraosseous needle to deliver these medications. Do you think this is a feasible way, feasible way to deliver important medications such as prostin? And do you think this would work? I think in a, in a shocked neonate, I think it would be quite difficult. I can understand it's going to be difficult to establish venous access. But I think uh, intraosseous access is going to be somewhat difficult as well. Um, I would think in a neonate that we still have the potential to access the umbilical vein as well. Um, mm. And that umbilical vein would potentially be more uh, readily accessible. Uh, so even a neonate that has been uh, discharged home, there is still potential for accessing um, the umbilical vein and, and getting the prostin in that way. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think that um, if you if you got your tibial interosseous in, do you think the circulation is substantial enough to be able to get the prostin from the tibial bone um, up, into the, up, up to where it's required at the ductal level? Like, uh, the circulation seems to be obstructed at that level. Yeah, so I would have some, some concerns about whether that will actually reach the systemic circulation, especially in a, in a shocked uh, neonate. Um, yeah, so I guess in reality, in retrieval, at, in certainly in my experience, um, we found that babies don't improve until we have the prostate running via an upper limb IV line, or as um, Dr. Neela Legg has shown in her study of UVC insertion, until we get a UVC in. And as you said... Um, and probably many clinicians listening to this may not be aware of, you can get a UVC safely in up to about two weeks of life. And um, I usually advise my trainees and nursing teams just to close their eyes and have a go if they can, even if the stump is gone. Because if you can get in and get the prostate going via a UVC, it can be life-saving. So Christian, before we finish, I want to ask you, where would you like to see paediatric cardiology go next? How can we improve things for babies and their families with congenital heart disease? What would you like to see researched in your area? So I think paediatric cardiology over the past 20 years has really come a long way. We've got some fantastic new techniques. Uh, we are doing more cardiac catheterizations and interventional cardiac catheterizations. But I think we're reaching a point where we have achieved a lot technically. I think now the challenge is getting that care out to every baby that is born in New South Wales. Mm. So we want every baby and family in New South Wales to be able to access that high-level care. We can do that, but I think it just requires a lot of planning and a lot of coordination. Um, 
but I do have the confidence that we can do that. But I think that is where the challenge now lies. I think our techniques are good. We have the necessary infrastructure within our large centre, but we now need to uh, provide that care across the state, not only at a neonatal retrieval level, but also more at a community level, providing the outpatient care to, to everyone. We do that already, but I think we could probably do that better um, in providing you know, that really subspecialist care. Mm. So, And do you think that's more in a sort of an outreach clinic situation or do you think sort of virtual care? Do you th- are you in the pandemic recently? Have you been doing any virtual care? Yeah, clinics? absolutely. I think I think a lot of us have discovered that actually the, the pandemic has opened our, our eyes as to what's actually possible. Yeah. I guess we knew these things were possible, but now we're actually forced to, to do some of these things. And so I've been uh, quite impressed by what is actually uh, doable with telehealth um, and have been doing a lot of uh, my appointments and assessments by telehealth. It naturally works a little bit easier for me with arrhythmia being my thing uh, in that the ECG is key for me mm. and that doesn't, I don't have to be, uh, the patient doesn't have to be in my office for that ECG to occur. Mm. So I think it's a combination of those things, but I think we need to be smart about it and we need to think in different ways. And I think the, the pandemic has recently actually made us to, forced us to do things in different ways, whereas ordinarily we might not have pushed ourselves to do that. And I think it is about providing, um, uh, when we do need to see the patient in our uh, office or the clinic room, that we actually look at doing subspecialist clinics around as well. And we are investigating that, and I'm hoping that we will be providing more subspecialist clinics around the state in the years to come. Yeah, so I like how you found a positive spin on the pandemic, COVID-19 there. That's great. But I, but you also dodged the research question. Oh, no. I've, um, so uh, I, in terms of research, my thing at the moment is that I think we are missing a lot of very valuable data. Uh, in all of the presentations that come to us on a day-to-day basis, the routine presentations, I think we are missing a lot of the data there. Um, and I think we could be learning a lot from that data. At the moment, a lot of the time we rely on people's memories about what baby they saw three years ago and how that baby did, depending mm. on whatever unusual lesion that baby had. I think we can be doing better in terms of collecting that data routinely and having that data analyzable. Now, clearly that sort of data isn't as good as a randomized uh, double-blinded control trial, but I still think there's an awful lot to be learned from it. And it's almost like it's free data as well. It's there for us. And so I think there's a a lot of scope at the moment for us to collect that data and use it. And I think in years to come, we will be using that data better and using it to our advantage. So, I mean, you would have a cardiac database now. We have something of a cardiac database, but it doesn't pick up all of the... um, nuanced information that you might not ordinarily, um, that you might be able to collect with a a more sophisticated database and a more sophisticated collection um, uh, system. So that you can ask questions of it and say collecting data, not knowing what questions you might ask of it in the future. That's right. And also not only diagnostic information, but um, in terms of how the patient progresses with a particular treatment. so, and I think that is probably generalizable to many other areas of pediatric, well, uh, for pediatrics and for medicine in general. I think there is a lot of information that we're we're uh, not utilizing to our. Um, mm, we're just letting op- it slide by. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that then, as you can see from this podcast, really, there's a lot of NETS data that we've used to be able to sort of inform our practice and um, move us forward. Um, so now, Christian, before we finish, just to be consistent with the themes of this podcast, I need to ask you as a doctor, how has gender affected your career and family life? And what do you think we could be doing better in that regard? So, um, well, I'm not sure if the listeners have noticed, but I am a, a male. And um, I must say, I, I don't feel like I've um, had any, any problems uh, with my um, career being male, but I am very mindful that it isn't an equal playing field. 
Um, I am married to another specialist pediatrician, and we talked earlier about how long it did take me to go through the training program and the necessary exposure to to be able to work as a pediatric electrophysiologist, and that meant that my wife did need to. Um, well, she was very good in um, in uh, coming along on the journey as well. But that was, I think it's fair to say, quite a juggle um, for us both, but particularly for my wife. And it meant that her career was put on hold during that time. I think it was quite fortunate that um, her uh, the, the department she was working in was quite flexible around that. But I, I, I do think that... Um, it does place a particular strain on uh, on the partners in in uh, in jobs like this, uh, especially if that partner is uh, medical uh, and also would like to pursue a career as well. So it has been quite a juggle. Um, it, it, I think it's been worth it. Um, yeah. Would you ever think of um, taking a step back so that her career could catch up, or do you feel you've already you've managed to reach parity between the two of you? Oh, I think we've found a, a good spot. Um, it is, it, well, I must say it's still an ongoing juggle, actually, managing the, the family life and and the obligations and demands of two specialists. Uh, it certainly is a juggle. It is a little bit easier now the kids are that much older and can sometimes <laughs> look after themselves. Uh, but it is on, an ongoing juggle, and most of the time it's fun. Yep. Okay, that's great. Thanks, Christian. So it's always a pleasure to work with you, Christian, and you're always patient and kind and have a ready smile. Um, So thank you so much for the work that you do every day to make the lives of children with congenital heart disease better. And thanks for having a neonatal conversation with me today. Oh, it's been really fun, Kath. Thank you very much. If you have enjoyed this podcast or have questions, please head to the webpage www.neonatalconversations.com where there are links to the references used in this podcast and where we might be able to continue the discussion. You can also leave feedback or commentary on Facebook, Neonatal Conversations, or on Twitter at NeoConversation. We would really appreciate any feedback you might have. Thanks so much for listening and thank you all for caring for the critically ill newborn. Mm